G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Do you remember what Christmas was like when you were a child? Do you remember the wonder that you experienced? The Christmas tree and how beautiful and majestic you were with family and you're eating together. There was a wonder attached to it. A lot of it had to do with because you still had a wonder about God. So there's a connection here. As you grow older and you lose the wonder of God, it's natural that you should lose your wonder of Christmas because you've forgotten how awesome God really is. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Do you remember what Christmas was like when you were a child? In this Christmas series, Pastor Jeff is rediscovering the wonder of Christmas. In this message, he's speaking about the joy that comes with childlike wonder. Join us now in Mark chapter 10 from verse 13 and take time to pause, stop, and think about the significance of this season. Here's Pastor Jeff. Let me just say from the get-go, it's my hope and dream that somehow during the series that you will recapture the wonder that you used to have as a child concerning Christmas. I know as I get older, this is the first year in a long time I haven't listened to Christmas music yet, and here we are. Usually I'm listening November 1st, but I've been so busy and the rat race catches us by surprise. But it's not only being busy, there's something about as we get older, we get a little bit more hardened and we lose the wonder of Christmas, but losing the wonder of Christmas is because we've lost the wonder of something else and I wanna help you recapture that. So this sermon has three parts to it. And we're going to go through those parts and then connect them back together. And the first part is this. And we'll get to my, uh, Mark chapter 10 because the, the primary text, verse 13 through 16, will help us understand this. It'll bring it together. Oftentimes I'm asked where Christmas is concerned, because if you remember, you have this beautiful, solemn manger where the Son of God enters time and space and he dies for the sins of the world. He's going to become a man. And this beautiful, solemn, quiet, peaceful child is going to grow up and he comes to the earth specifically for doing this. He's going to grow up and he's going to die on a cross. And it's not going to die just any death. He's going to die a very gruesome death. So sometimes when I speak on college campuses, one of the questions that I get asked is, Pastor Jeff, I'm just not sure about this Christian stuff. I mean, what kind of God needs a human sacrifice to appease himself? Well, that shows you don't really understand what's going on. Not only in the redemptive story, but also in the idea of forgiveness. Think about it. People will say, well, why can't God just forgive? I mean, if, he, if, he, he's, if he's as loving as you say he is, why does he need a human sacrifice? Why can't he just say, hey, I'm going to forgive you because I'm just that kind of God? Imagine for a moment that you've bought a new car, you've been working a long time, you saved your money, and you park it every day in a parking garage while you're at work. And then one day, at five o'clock, you get off work, you come back in the parking garage, and just as you turn the corner, you see this young guy with a baseball bat, and he's smashing your car. Okay, the hood, the windows, the doors, even your little Dodger bobblehead on the dash, you know, your little Sandy Koufax. And thank goodness, the policeman is there, so he catches the culprit. 
and he handcuffs him and brings him over to you. And the policeman says, you know, what do you think you're doing? And he says, well, you know, I've thought about it and I don't know what came over me, but I'm sorry. I wish I hadn't done it, so I'm sorry. And the policeman looks at you and says, hey, he's sorry. Can't you just forgive him? Well, there's a problem. It's a conundrum, isn't it? Because all forgiveness requires payment of somehow. I mean, if I'm you or if my car has been damaged like that, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want to respond. I, I, no person I know would not want to say, hey, give me that baseball bat. I'm going to take it out on him. And what if the policeman looks at you and says, hey, you're being vindictive. Can't you just forgive? Can't you let it go? Well, that's the conundrum with forgiveness. You know, it's, it's not that easy to just let it go. There's always a price to be paid. You know, somebody's going to pay for your car, he's going to pay for your car, or you're going to have to pay for your car, or you're going to have to pay the price of living without it. But that's the problem with forgiveness. It, it, it puts you in a place where somebody's got it. Somebody, it doesn't just disappear. The damage has been done. You, you can't just pretend it never happened. And that's why we often say that forgiveness means bearing the loss or absorbing the cost. Now, the other thing is, is it really loving to forgive the young man? So you see, in a way, it's not loving because he may go and do it again. There's been no repercussions. But at the same time, part of you wants to forgive because you're given grace and mercy. You see, forgiveness is not as easy as you think it is because there's always ramifications. There's always damage that's been done. Even the Bible says our sins have been separated as far as the East is from the West, but it doesn't say they never occurred. Let's say your daughter's been raped and you find yourself in court and the culprit has been arrested. He comes before the judge. The judge says, what do you have to say for yourself? And he says, well, I've thought about it, judge, and I'm, I'm sorry. I wish I hadn't done it. And the judge says, oh, well, if you're sorry, you're free to go. Now, the question is, is that good for your daughter doesn't it cheapen her as a victim? It's not good for society because now you have a rapist walking the streets. Imagine the Nuremberg trials and the generals of the Third Reich said, hey, you know, we thought about this Holocaust thing, what we did after second thought, we're sorry. And the judge says, oh, well, if you're sorry, go ahead. Doesn't that minimize? That's not justice. Doesn't it minimize the crimes against humanity? The point is, that if you love the young man, the girl, the town, the society, you can't say no worries. You can't just say, let it go. That's not a good move. And if, and if that's a conundrum for us, if, if we as judges on, in, human just, in human justice have a hard time harmonizing this call on our lives to forgive with the reality that it's not that easy, you can't just let it slide. Somebody's got to pay. There's a price always to be paid by somebody then how much more for a benevolent, good, kind, loving God? For God to just wipe away sin as if it never occurred and the victims to separate them from the perpetrators as if no harm had been done is not a just thing. And I don't think most of us would even say that's loving. So what must it be like for God in the human predicament to try to, not try because God knows what he's doing here, but if, if we in our human flesh struggle with this issue of justice and, and we want to be kind and benevolent, then what conundrum is God placed in? Now, here's, here's the thing, but, but God solves it in a way that you and I can't because that's what the incarnation's about. So God comes to earth in the form of man. This is Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. 
And all the damage that our transgressions causes, the cosmic treason, the cosmic impact. In fact, you and I will never know the degree of the impact of our sins because God does put his hand up and say this far, no further. We also have a deposit of the power of the Holy Spirit because you and I are able to witness as God takes the chaos and the sin in the world and even brings beauty pattern design out of that. If he didn't do that, how much damage could sin do? But something happens when Jesus comes to the earth, he pays our sin debt on the cross. It's an objective uh, uh, occurrence. He pays the sin debt. It's an objective reality. And you and I are forgiven of our sins, but he paid the debt on our behalf. And I don't think most of us realize even now, much less waiting till we get to heaven, I don't think we realize what God has done to make this world as bearable as it is. Every human judge faces this conundrum. And so it's not loving for God not to forgive, but it's not loving if he just simply acts as though injustices have not been committed. You know that. That's why sometimes the other accusation will come. Well, I can't believe in a God who would allow injustice on planet earth. Well, which one do you want? You want him to forgive when it's you. You want him to punish when it's not you and the sin is against you. Don't you see that in the cross is brilliant in the mind of God because you have the holiness of God coming into play because the requirements of his holiness have been met in the sin has been punished on the cross. Justice has been done, but his love his compelling love has been enacted because he paid the penalty for you and me so that we could go free and that his wisdom is in full play because he, before the foundations of the world, established that this would be the way that he would redeem the world. Now, I want you to take that idea of redemption and forgiveness and place it to the side. And here's the second part of the sermon. It's a new question. Do you remember what it was like, what Christmas was like when you were a child? Do you remember the wonder that you experienced of walking in snow of the Christmas tree and how beautiful and majestic. I brought my granddaughter Ada over today to look at the Christmas tree and it doesn't even have any ornaments on it yet. And man, she looked up and she thought, wow, this is so beautiful. Now I did this before we put all the lights up. Now it looks, it's gorgeous. But do you remember what you felt about Christmas when you were with family and you're eating together? There was a wonder attached to it. And a lot of it had to do with because you still had a wonder about God. So there's a connection here. As you grow older and you lose the wonder of God, it's natural that you should lose your wonder of Christmas because you've forgotten how awesome God really is. There's a reason for that. And this is where our text comes into play. In Mark chapter 10, verse 13, we're told that people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them and blessed them. So evidently, there's a connection between the wonder that we experience at Christmas and childlikeness and then one other idea that we find in the same chapter, Mark 10, verse 45, when Jesus says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now stay with me. It'll be hard at first. We'll bring it all. Remember, we're pouring it all into the funnel. It'll all come out in the end. So you have this idea of wonder. You have this idea of childlike. 
And you have this idea now of ransom. And those are inextricably tied together. And to understand that means that you can regain the wonder of Christmas. Let's keep going. This word for ransom is the word lutron. And the word originates from the practice of warfare. So the price paid is the lutron. The price paid to bring a prisoner of war back home. Now, they didn't have POW camps like we do today. You were either sold into slavery for the rest of your life or you were executed. And the only way you could escape slavery was if a countryman came and rescued you. Your family probably didn't because they were enslaved as well. But if a countryman came and found you worthy, he could pay what is called the lutron, the, the ransom. He could pay the price. And it was very expensive because he would pay the price equivalent to your entire lifetime in slavery. Now, Listen carefully. This word lutron, ransom, has an objective, and that's why we spent the first part of the sermon talking about forgiveness. It has an objective side to it and a subjective side. An objective side is something that happens outside of you, to you. Subjectively, there's something that happens inside you, for you. So we know the objective part. A debt has been paid. That's what the cross is about. Forgiveness occurs. Christ pays the debt you owe. And again, It's far greater than just sin, folks. It's the impact of sin on humanity. And we'll never know what that kind of cosmic treason would have been like without the death and sacrifice of Christ. Now, that's another sermon in and of itself. Objectively, I get it. But subjectively, what is it exactly that happens inside us? That's a bit more difficult to understand, but the scripture talks about it as freedom or liberation. So a debt has been paid, objective debt. Subjectively, there's something that happens inside us that frees us, that liberates us. What is that? Gandhi, one of the world's religious leaders, had the opposite problem. He said that he understood the subjective part, but not the objective. So in his biography, Gandhi wrote this about Jesus, and I quote, he said, I can accept Jesus as a martyr and as an embodiment of sacrifice and a divine teacher. His death on the cross was a great example to the world, but that there are anything or was anything like a mysterious, miraculous virtue in it, my heart cannot accept. Now, what is Gandhi saying? He's saying this, I can handle the cross as a subjective influence. I can see how it changes me internally. I can see that it's a great example of sacrificial love, And that motivates me to love sacrificially. I can see that it would get me out of the bondage of selflessness or selfishness, the bondage of living for self rather than something else. But I cannot, he says, accept the Bible's teaching at the cross that it has some kind of objective, pay the debt virtue to it. So Gandhi would say, oh yeah, the cross is great. Look at Jesus. I mean, he's He's given up his life for other people. He's living a sacrificial life and there's no selfishness in him. Okay, I can see that. That's, the, that's what changes inside me as I see his example, I become like him. But the problem is this, as I explain again and again, if the cross is only subjective, it is not subjectively liberating. And here's why. Because as I see Jesus on the cross, I see him praying for those who are killing him. He says, Father, forgive them. Do you think that's subjectively liberating? I don't think so. Because I see him doing that and I might be compelled to it. I might be impressed. But the fact of the matter is, I don't live that way. So for me, at best, it's crushing. At worst, it's crazy. I don't live that way at all. I mean, I know I should be like that, but that makes me feel even more guilty because that's not my first response. 
My first response to someone who's damaging or wounding me or my family is, let me have that baseball bat. So unless most of us are being watched, we don't act that way. So when we see Jesus acting that way, it doesn't free me or liberate me. It makes me feel even more in bondage, bondage to my sin, because I know that's not what I'm like. Gandhi says, let's be like Jesus. And when he says that, I'm crushed. I'm crushed because I know I'm not like that. I'm crushed into the dust. However, stay with me now. If I see Jesus up there praying for me and forgiving me and objectively paying my sin debt, that is what liberates me. If I don't see him objectively paying my debt, I'm crushed subjectively because I know I can never measure up. And that's the problem with most of us. Let me give you these two examples. Let's say you and I are walking down at Newport Beach and we're on Balboa Pier. Actually, I don't know if it's called Balboa Pier, but it's where the Rubies is at the end of the pier. I love that Rubies. I love to have dinner or lunch out on the ocean, especially on the second story there, looking over the waters. Let's say you and I go down there and I'm gonna take you to my favorite lunch place and we're walking around the pier and suddenly I look to you and I say, hey, you know what? I really like you. You've done a lot for one and all church and I just appreciate you. Then suddenly I just dive over the pier into the water and drown. Would you say, oh, Pastor Jeff, look how he loved me. Wow, no. You'd say, man, Pastor Jeff's had a bit too much Zoloft or maybe one too many Xanax. Why? Because there's no reason. You're gonna think I'm mentally ill. However, if you and I are walking along the pier and somehow you stumble and fall and there are sharks all below, remember this is a story, I know there are no sharks, in, well, there could be, but let's say there's shark infested water and suddenly... You fall into it and I jump in to save you and I do rescue and by rescuing you, I lose my own life. Now people would say, wow, behold how Pastor Jeff loved that dude. There's no greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his friend. Now here's the rub. Unless there's an objective peril, unless we are in danger, giving our life on behalf of someone else is no good. But we are in objective peril. We need an objective payment that liberates us. We are drowning and Christ comes and rescues us. If he just jumps in the water and drowns, if he just is crucified for no reason other than to give us an example, well, that's crazy. But if we're in objective peril and his sin, our sin rather, motivates the heart of God to come to earth, to die for us on a cross, then that objective fact of payment for my sin moves me internally and does something to change me. Now, the question is why? Stay with me. Because we all have egos. Our whole life is about us. We are selfish. We can't take criticism. Uh, we want everybody to love us. We put far too much stock in what people think about us, in our children, in our spouses. We ask them to deliver something they're not capable of delivering They we're not designed to deliver. Simply put, we are compensating, selfish, self-absorbed, self-promoting people, perpetually depressed by the reality that we know who we really are. And the Bible teaches, while Eastern religions or people like Gandhi would say, don't be so driven, don't be so selfish, don't be in such bondage, don't you know God loves you? Well, my answer to that is no, I don't know that God loves me. How do I know God loves me? How do you know? But Jesus Christ says, I have something much deeper than that. I've given you objective proof of how I feel about you. 
The cross doesn't just give you a proposition, folks. The cross gives you a story, a true story, a ransom story. Jesus says, I've given my life a ransom for yours. I want you to see what I've done for you. Let's keep going. I know it's, it's difficult, but again, it'll all come together in the end. I don't know if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., but in Washington, D.C., you have the Potomac River. It flows right through the center. It's quite famous historically as well as geographically. And there are a bunch of bridges that go across the river at 14th Street. And one of the bridges is named Arlen D. Williams. Do you know why? January 1982, Air Florida Flight 90 was taking off from Washington National. It had ice on its wings. This is before we were in the de-icing. It started to lose altitude, hit the 14th Street bridges, and went into the Potomac. When the helicopter arrived to rescue any survivors, the plane was quickly sinking into the ice-frozen river. You've got a photo of it here. The tail was sticking out of the water and everybody was drowning or had already drowned except for a few people in the tail of the fuselage, the aircraft. One guy, Arnold D. Williams, was the most visible, most alert, most accessible. So the people in the helicopter lowered the harness toward Williams in hope of saving at least one. But when they pulled up the harness, someone else was on it. They lowered it a second time, a third time, a fourth time. And every time, someone else was on the end of the harness. Every time, he gave his place of salvation to somebody else. All who were saved on that flight were saved right here, right then. And the last time they lowered the rope, no one came up. Arlen D. Williams gave to others his place of deliverance. He took the destruction that was coming upon them on himself. He gave them rescue. Now, why does that move us? Because that is the most morally beautiful thing that we know. In any story, fiction or nonfiction, the moral beauty of substitutionary sacrifice melts you, takes your heart, captivates you. And Jesus Christ says, other religions give you information. I give you a story. Other religions tell you God loves you, but you don't know why or how. Jesus says, I'll give you proof. And we're told that his ransom is the only thing that can truly break through into your selfishness and liberate you. This is where the liberation, remember we said the cross objectively pays your debt, but subjectively something happens inside you that changes you. This is it. Everything changes because through the cross, you finally know what you mean to God and what he's willing to do. And suddenly, all these other things that you're chasing, your appearance, your money, your relationships, your achievements, your positions are no longer the source of your significance. You move through your life liberated. You're freed up, man. Not by a general proposition, but by this, the fact that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is the reason for Christmas. This is why he came, to pay the debt and to free the heart. Now, here's the final question. How do we connect with that? Pastor Jeff, you've talked about forgiveness. I see that it's quite a conundrum, and I see that God has solved it in the person of Jesus Christ. Justice has been met. Holiness has been answered. Love has conquered all. You've talked to us now about 
how it liberates us internally and it liberates us because we realize suddenly through a story how much God loves us. But how do we connect with that? And here's the answer. And it's the kickoff to the series by becoming a little child. You have to become childlike, not childish, childlike. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. If you think he's not interested in every thought and every action and every struggle that you have, then you're not childlike. The penny's not yet dropped. You've not truly seen your value because the cross shows you that you are loved and accepted and appreciated at your absolute worst. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.